welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. During the month of April, we're going to take a short pause in our other series to focus on the events surrounding the crucifixion. Today we will look at the inauguration of the Lord's uh, Supper or Communion. Then in later sermons we will focus on the cross, the tomb, and the road to Emmaus. The Gospel of Luke provides us with a detailed account of these events beginning in chapter 2. But before we begin, let's open the word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for Luke chapter 22. I pray, Lord, that you would allow the light of the gospel, the light of your words to shine into each one's heart today as it is shown into my heart this week. I pray that you'll still our hearts, that you'll help us to fight any distraction from our previous week or the week to come. And instead, that we would focus our attention on you, the glory of your plan, and that we would leave here today praising and worshiping you for the God you are. We love you. Amen. Would you please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22 as we study today verses 1 through 23 together. Usually I would have a lot of verses up on the screen, maybe an outline, but today is more of a, a story, a narrative, an account that I want us to just flow through the story together. There aren't really main points that I'm trying to bring up to you. Instead, I'm trying to share with you what God's Word says about this real historical event, this time in the life of Christ where he uh, inaugurated or brought into beginning uh, the table, communion, the Lord's Supper, and the significance of that in his life, in history, and in our lives as well. So I'm just going to leave the title page up there for so we can keep reminding ourselves that this is the, the topic for the day, is the Lord's Supper or the table, but uh, that it's going to stay there for the remainder of the sermon. Leading up to this point, in the Gospel of Luke, many things have been proclaimed about Jesus and by Jesus himself. Zechariah prophesied that he is the horn of salvation sent by God, the promised Messiah, the powerful rescuer. An angel proclaimed to the shepherds on the hillside that Jesus is the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. Simeon prophesied that he is the salvation sent by God, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the people of Israel. At Jesus' baptism, God the Father proclaims before a crowd of people, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus himself picked up the scroll of Isaiah and in front of a synagogue full of people, read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolls up the scroll, sits down, and says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus also proclaims he is the Lord of the Sabbath, an observance commanded by God, and therefore only overruled by God. At the transfiguration, God the Father again proclaims, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. These proclamations were accompanied with signs, wonders, and healings, proving that Jesus was who he said he was, the promised Messiah. But he wasn't the Messiah that the religious leaders were looking for. They were looking for a man who would powerfully overthrow the Romans and issue in prosperity. But instead, Jesus claimed to be God the Son who took on flesh so that he might bring salvation to his people, peace with God, and provide adoption into the family of the king. But the more Jesus was proclaimed, his power revealed, his divinity proven, the greater the hatred that was produced in the hearts of the people living in darkness. So much so that there were several attempts already made on his life at this point. Even Jesus warned his disciples about what was to come, about what, was, what must be fulfilled. He said to them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This is the backdrop of Luke 22. As you look through the the Gospel of Luke, you would see these events unfolding. The end of Jesus' ministry on earth is approaching. The time has come, and God the Father allows the forces of darkness to conspire against the Son. We read the following in Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 2. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. The enemies of the Lord hated him. They hated his message. They hated his wisdom. They hated his power. They hated his servant leadership. They hated that he loved and elevated the lowly. And they would sit around scheming how they could murder him. But up until this point, everything they had tried failed. It's as if God the Father's hand had been outstretched, holding back the forces of darkness, not allowing any to harm his son. But then in verse 3, we see God the Father remove his restraining hand. And the devil is given freedom to move against his son. Verse 3 says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. 
And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. It's at this point in a normal or regular story, like a novel or a movie, that the reader begins to get worried. We start to think, watch out, Jesus. They're coming for you. If only I could jump through the screen and tell him what just happened behind his back. Judas is a traitor. Don't trust him. I can't believe you trust him. But this story is different. This is the story of the sovereign God saving his people for the glory of his name. This is the story where at the moment Adam and Eve sinned and fell in the garden, God promised that one of their descendants will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. This is the story where Abraham is promised that through his line all the descendants, or sorry, all the nations of the world would be blessed. This is the story where Isaac carries a bundle of wood on his back to the top of Mount Moriah and is about to be sacrificed when God intervenes and provides a ram instead. This mountain was from then on known as the Lord will provide. And when Israelite travelers would pass by Mount Moriah, they would say, on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. On the same mount, the city of Jerusalem is later built. The place where Jesus would carry his wooden cross and become the final sacrifice. This is the story of Joseph who was sold by his brothers out of envy for pieces of silver. The price of a slave. The price paid for the betrayal of Jesus. This book that we carry around is one story that points to one God-man. Jesus. This is not the story of a mere man who falls victim to evil forces outside of his control. This is the story of God, the sovereign Lord of the universe, bringing all things about for the glory of his name and for the salvation of his people. In case we had forgotten that God is sovereign and that Jesus is in control even during his betrayal, Luke reminds us of this fact in verses 7 through 13. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared it. Jesus is reminding his disciples, and he is reminding us that he is in control. 
He knows what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. Even down to the minute details of a man being at the right place at the right time, carrying a jar of water, heading to the right house that had an upper room that was perfect for their needs. The events that are unfolding are in fact the plan and purpose of God. That on the mount of the Lord, the Lord himself would provide the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We continue reading in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. In order to understand what just happened, we must have a clear understanding of the significance of the Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover was the most significant celebration on the Jewish calendar. In fact, we learn in Exodus 12, verse 2, that God establishes the Israelite calendar based on this celebration. He says, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. The event that is celebrated by the Passover is God delivering his people from bondage out of Egypt. Pharaoh and Egypt were, were under the judgment of God for the way they had abused God's people, Israel. And God was displaying his power and might for the whole world to know. Nine plagues had tormented the Egyptians, but still they refused to let God's people go from slavery. And now the tenth and final plague is revealed. God is going to kill every firstborn male of man and livestock in the entire land of Egypt. There would be no exceptions. From Pharaoh in his gilded palace to the prisoner in the dungeon, every firstborn male would die. But God did provide a way of escape from his wrath that was about to fall. He instructed his people to kill a lamb for each household and to spread its blood on the doorposts and the lintel of their houses. By this simple act of faith, all those who believed the word of the Lord would be spared this great destruction. The people were to take the lamb that was killed and roast it on the fire, and they were to eat unleavened bread. No leaven or yeast was to be found in their homes. 
Anyone who disobeyed and ate leavened bread during the days of celebration would be cut off from the people of God. The people were even instructed to put on their traveling clothes, wear their sandals, tighten their belts, and to hold their staff in their hand while they ate this meal as a sign to them that God was about to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. That very night, the Lord passed through the land of Egypt, striking down the firstborn man and uh, the firstborn of man and livestock. But when he came to a house with the blood of the lamb across the doorpost and the lintel, he passed over. He passed over that house because of their faith in the word of the Lord, which they expressed by obeying the Lord's command. This final plague broke Pharaoh's resolve, and with a mighty hand, the Lord saved his people from bondage. The exodus, or the going out, was accomplished, and the people were brought into the wilderness, where God established his covenant with them, and for a time they wandered in the wilderness until the day of the, 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 day the Lord would bring them to the promised land. Keep this story of the Passover, this remembrance of the Passover in mind, because it's significant for what's going to happen in verses 15 and 20, 15 through 20. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus knew what was coming. His time of suffering had arrived, and even though his disciples could not understand the significance of what he was saying around the table, the Lord knew that all his words would be brought to remembrance later by the Spirit of God. Verse 16 says, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it, the Passover, is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Though the disciples did not understand what was going on at the time, we can see that Jesus is declaring to them that he is about to leave this earth to take his place at the right hand of the Father. And while we wait for his return, he is fasting from the bread and from the fruit of the vine, fasting until his second coming. He eagerly awaits the day when he will come for his people, the church, like a bridegroom waiting for the day when he will finally, when he finally will come for his bride. And the wedding feast can begin. John prophesies of this future wedding feast in Revelation 19. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunders, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is fasting from the bread and from the fruit of the vine 
while he anticipates his second coming. But in Luke 22, verse 19, we see that he wants us to actually do the opposite. It says in verse 19, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In these two verses, Jesus establishes a new meal of remembrance and celebration. The scriptures call this meal the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion, and the Breaking of Bread. But all of these descriptions are speaking of the same thing, this meal of remembrance and celebration that was inaugurated by the Lord as recorded here in Luke 22. If you would, imagine with me the scene. Jesus and his disciples are reclining at a table that's low to the ground in their culture. And Jesus takes the unleavened bread and raises his voice to the Father, thanking him for his provision. And then, what does he do? He breaks the bread. He takes the unleavened bread intended to remind the Jews of God's previous salvation from bondage in Egypt, and he breaks it in pieces and says to them, This is my body. This symbolizes my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. No longer would this bread primarily remind them of Egypt. This bread would now remind them of an even greater salvation. The salvation that Jesus was about to accomplish through his being broken for them. The Passover reminded Israel of their deliverance from a wicked oppressor. But the Lord's table is remembrance of his sacrifice, which delivered us from the power of sin and death, and transfers us from the dominion of darkness into his kingdom of light. Jesus then gave them the cup, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is declaring to them that the wine and the cup they are sharing together represents his blood, which is about to be poured out for, for them. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus says that when his blood is spilled for them, it will inaugurate or bring into beginning the new covenant. To understand what he means by the new covenant, we must first understand the old covenant. A covenant is basically an agreement. And the old covenant was an agreement between God and Israel after the exodus, while they were in the wilderness. The old covenant set the expectations for how a person, even a nation, could live righteously before God. How as a people, Israel could accomplish peace with God and receive God's blessings. We read an abbreviation of the covenant in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 18. Moses says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, 
by walking in his way, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you and in the land, in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. That was the old covenant, or an abbreviation of the old covenant. And you might be thinking, that doesn't actually sound too difficult. I think I might be able to do that. But then you read the rest of the Old Testament and you begin to see that the Israelites couldn't obey the Lord. They couldn't keep his commandments. There was something terribly wrong with the people of God. Moses said that their problem was that they had not been given a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear in Deuteronomy 29. The Israelites were called a stiff-necked people, unwilling to turn their heads to the Lord, always stubbornly following their own way, loving the wisdom of man rather than the wisdom of God, constantly pursuing death rather than pursuing the way, the truth, and the life. And so go every single one of us apart from the mercy and grace of God. His intervention in our lives. The old covenant powerfully put on display man's inability to please God. Man's inability to keep their end of the bargain. And with every failure of that covenant, individuals had to travel to the temple, bring an animal, and sacrifice it as a temporary comfort for their sins. But as Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away their sins. Even in the Old Testament, the need for a new and better covenant is clear. A new covenant where God intervenes and accomplishes for us what we could not. In Deuteronomy 30, we get a glimpse of this new covenant. It says in verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Then in Jeremiah 31, we begin to see an even clearer picture of the new covenant. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The old covenant was written in stone. And Israel attempted to conform themselves outwardly to it. 
but the new covenant is written on our hearts, changing us on the inside, which results in the outward conformance to God and His way. Then in Ezekiel 36, we see another incredible glimpse of the new covenant, written over 500 years before the Christ or the Messiah would appear. God says in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Under the old covenant, only a select few were filled with the Holy Spirit for special service to God. And the, and the Spirit's indwelling in that individual was not necessarily permanent. It could be taken away. But God promises in Ezekiel that for His glory and for the praise of His name and for the good of His people, He is going to send His Spirit to make His home in their hearts so that their hearts can come alive and respond in love in obedience to their God. In Luke 22, verse 20, Jesus says, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is anticipating his blood being poured out as the final and ultimate sacrifice, which will inaugurate or bring into beginning this new covenant. This new covenant replaces the old covenant, we no longer go to a temple and sacrifice animals for sins because Jesus was the perfect, complete, and final sacrifice. In Hebrews 10, we read the following beautiful truth, beginning in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, describing the old covenant, what was still going on at the temple. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is what we bring to remembrance when we break the bread and share the cup. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of what Christ has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. It's a celebration of what he is doing now in us and for us as our high priest. And it is shared in anticipation of what Christ will accomplish at, at his second coming. When the church will eat the wedding feast with him as his bride. Coming to the communion table is a solemn occasion. But it is also a celebration. It is a time of self-reflection, a time to ensure that there is no unconfessed sin that would disrupt your fellowship with God. 
but it is also a time to rejoice in the truth that although I am a sinner, Christ alone is perfect. And that through faith in his work on my behalf, I am declared righteous in the sight of God. On Friday of this week, we will gather to celebrate the Lord's table together in remembrance of him. Are you truly able to celebrate with the family of God? To celebrate this new covenant in his blood. A covenant based on faith alone and the sacrifice of Christ alone on your behalf. Or are you still pursuing elements of the old covenant? Trying to outwardly conform yourself to a moral standard that will hopefully one day satisfy the holiness and righteousness of God. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, except through Jesus and his sacrifice, his righteousness. He alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Abandon all self-righteousness. Abandon all your ideas of goodness before a holy and righteous God that you have on your own. And cast yourself on the perfect, righteous sacrifice of Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you accomplished for those who were your enemies what they, what I, could not accomplish. We were your enemies. You loved us first. I pray, Lord, that during this month that our hearts would be knitted yours, that our thoughts and our love would be elevated above the things of this world, that it would be placed firstly and rightly on you, because you first loved us and gave yourself for us. Lord, would you bless this church? Would you take this truth of your word would you hide it in our hearts? Would it change us first? And then would you give us courage to go out and to tell others as well of the joy, of the good news of this new covenant that you have offered us through your sacrifice. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.